0: Well, I want to begin this morning by encouraging you and inviting you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. This is week number two of our fall series. The series is called Rhythms of Grace, and throughout this series, we are exploring a number of spiritual disciplines together. We said last week that we kind of grouped them in pairs, so listening and speaking, fasting and feasting, solitude and community, simplicity and generosity, and work and rest. Uh, last week we began with Bible intake or listening, and then today we're going to do the counterpart to that speaking or prayer. Now, prayer is a vast subject. I mean, it's obviously way too big to uh, do any real justice to in just one week, but it is so foundational to our relationship with God that we do need to start somewhere. And where I want to start is where Jesus started his teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. Now, before I read that for you, I just want to say that that while there is much that we can and should learn about the practice of prayer, things like finding a consistent time and place and having a good structure to our prayer times, at the heart of a healthy prayer life, is a healthy relationship with God. Jonathan Aiken is a former member of Parliament in Great Britain, and in a passage that I think many of us can identify with, he compares his early relationship to God with that of a bank manager. And he said this, I spoke with him politely, visited his premises intermittently, occasionally asked him for a small favor or overdraft to get myself out of difficulty, Thanked him condescendingly for his assistance, kept up the appearance of being one of his reasonably reliable customers, and maintained superficial contact with him on the grounds that one of these days he might come in useful. Now, Jonathan Aiken, the story behind this is that Jonathan Aiken was famously convicted of perjury in 1999, was sentenced to 18 months in prison, and he said it was in prison that he finally decided to pursue a more personal relationship with God. And I think a lot of us can identify with the way Achan describes his relationship with God. For many of us, our prayer life could be described as somewhat distant. I mean, we turn to prayer when we might need a favor or find ourselves in trouble. We're polite, we're respectful, but we're not really dependent on God. We're not desperate for Him. And so as we walk through this passage in Matthew chapter 6, I want to focus our attention on the relational aspect of prayer. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. This is God's Word, and this is what it says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Well, you know, we could spend a week exploring each of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. I actually covered this prayer or treated this prayer in way more depth back in 2013. But today I I want to draw your attention to five truths that are just meant to help you grow in your relationship with God through the practice of prayer or the rhythm of prayer. And the first one is to see prayer as a summons... And an invitation. So this passage begins with Jesus saying, and when you pray. In fact, he says it three times in quick succession. He says it in verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. In verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and close the door. And verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Jesus expected his followers to pray. And to pray with regularity. There is a summons or a call for us to pray. All through the New Testament, you find Christians are called or summoned or commanded to pray. So Paul will say things like, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Elsewhere he says it this way, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And many of us are familiar with one of the shortest verses in all of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which says, And pray without ceasing. So Christians are summoned. They're called to pray. There's an expectation, and we could say an obligation for us to pray. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, As it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to make shoes, So it is the business of Christians to pray. So there is a duty, there's a summons, there's a call to pray. Just as a general rightly expects to hear from his soldiers on the battlefield, God expects us to pray, to communicate with him, to maintain contact. But prayer is more than a summons or an expectation. Behind that summons is an invitation It's an invitation to a relationship with the living God. Now, last week I told you that the first two weeks of this series were foundational, listening and speaking, Bible intake and prayer. And I said that they are like the the breathing in and the breathing out of the Christian life. We will not survive without these things. But there's a a reason we did them in this order, listening and then speaking. Speaking. At its most basic level, prayer can be defined as talking to God or speaking with God. But what we shouldn't forget is that what we shouldn't forget is who it is that has initiated the conversation. God has spoken first, and prayer is our response to that. Now, some of you may use the Acts model for your personal prayer times. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's a simple, memorable, and I think a helpful way to structure prayer at times. But notice that all of those things are actually responses. God has shown himself to be great, and so we adore him. God has shown us his mercy and so we confess our sins. God has given us life and salvation and a host of other blessings and so we express our thanks to him. God is loving and caring. And so we petition him for ourselves, our family, our friends, and our world. That's supplication. All of those things are a response to who God is and what he has done. God has spoken first. And prayer is our response to that. So it's a relationship with God, a relationship with our Heavenly Father that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus tells us to go into our room, to shut the door, and to pray to our Father who is in secret. And the idea is that we are alone, not just with our thoughts but we're alone with our God, with our Father. There's a kind of intimacy that we experience in the prayer closet that we cannot experience in the crowd. There's a kind of shutting off of all distractions. That shutting off must take place if if we are to fully experience the presence of God. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that this was the pattern of Jesus' life. The height of his ministry activity, while his popularity was rising, Jesus repeatedly pulled away from the crowds to be alone with his Father. Luke records it like this. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And when it says he would withdraw, it has in mind something that he did on a regular basis. Jesus would constantly pull away from the crowds to be alone with God. And if I could encourage you with just one practical thing this week in response to this message, it would be to take Jesus up on his offer. I would encourage you to accept this invitation to go into your room, to close the door, and to pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us how long we are supposed to do this for. And so wherever you might be in your journey of prayer, you don't need to pray a long prayer. You just need to go and shut off the distractions and be alone with your Father and pray to Him. and See what happens when you make this a regular habit. You shut out those distractions in your life. So see it as both a summons and an invitation. Second observation about prayer is that we should approach prayer with honesty, not pretense. Listen again to verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Now, that word hypocrite that Jesus uses here originally referred to someone who was play acting, wearing a mask for a stage performance. And it is one thing to pretend to be someone when you're in character in a play, but it's quite another when you do that in real life. And the situation Jesus is describing here is of those who would love to pray in public They loved to pray standing on the street corners or in the synagogues. This was a common experience in Jesus' day. So there were these set times for prayer in the first century. And and throughout history, really, if you lived anywhere near the temple in Jerusalem, you would hear a trumpet sound each day at the time of the daily sacrifice. And this was a sort of stop, drop, and roll signal. When you heard the trumpet sound, you would stop what you were doing You would face the direction of the temple, and you would pray towards the temple. Now, they didn't have watches or smartphones in those days to sort of tell them what time it was and and when they might expect that trumpet to sound— But many people had this, you know, good internal sense of time. And for some people, they kind of turned it into an art form. They would just happen to be at, you know, the busiest of the street corners or right near the synagogue when that trumpet would sound. So everyone could see just how pious they were as they would pray with outstretched arms and loud voices. And I think this word that Jesus gives here about our public and private lives is so important in our day. I mean, we live in the Instagram age. Everything is done for the camera. Everything is done to be seen by others. And this entire section of the Sermon on the Mount has something to say about that. Back in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus said this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's going to go on to talk about how that relates to giving. He's going to say, don't announce it with trumpets so that others will praise you. At the end of the section, he's going to apply that to fasting. And he's going to say, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And he says the same thing about prayer. I think this is the problem with so much of the virtue signaling we're currently seeing. What's important is not that you have virtue, But that everyone knows that you have virtue, or at least they think that you have virtue because you've signaled it. You've done everything to be seen by others. But Jesus tells us plainly, we're not supposed to pray in a way that draws attention to ourselves. We're supposed to go into our room, shut the door, and pray to our Father who is in secret. Prayer is a place to drop all pretense. And this should actually be super freeing to us. This is where the honesty part of the equation comes in. See, when we go into our room, close the door, and pray to our Father in secret, we don't have to pretend. We don't have to try to impress Him with fancy words or lengthy prayers. We don't have to pretend to be something that we are not. Jesus is going to go on to say that our Father knows what we need before we even ask Him. Now, I'll have more to say about that in a minute, but at least one of the implications of that is that God knows us at the deepest possible level. And if He knows us at the deepest possible level, it means that we don't have to pretend before Him. Honesty in prayer is so important if this is ever to become a sustainable pattern in our lives. You know, the Psalms were known as Israel's songbook and prayer book. I love what John Calvin said about the Psalms. He said, No one will discover in himself a single feeling that is not reflected in the Psalms. All griefs, sorrows, hopes, fears, doubts, cares, anxieties. In short, all those tumultuous agitations of the soul are expressed in them. Now look, if the Psalms are our prayer book, it means that we can bring everything to God in prayer. Our fears, our struggles, our sin, And even just looking at the last two petitions of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives to us, we can see the way this works. Jesus teaches us to pray, Forgive us our debts, or forgive us our transgressions, and lead us not into temptation. So Jesus knows that we're sinners. He knows that we are in constant need of forgiveness. He knows that we are frequently tempted. And that without God's gracious intervention, we are sure to give in. And so we come before God with complete honesty. We drop the charade. Third observation about prayer from this passage is that we need to embrace the mystery of prayer and trust the character of God. There is a mystery about prayer. You probably have lots of questions about how it works. I know I do. Here's what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So wait, He knows what we need before we ask Him. Then why do we need to ask Him? That's part of the, the mystery of this. Now, I suspect part of the answer is that prayer isn't ultimately about getting what we, or getting those things that we have asked for, but I actually think there's a more important principle that Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is not just teaching us about prayer. He's teaching us about the character of God. He's teaching us what kind of God we have and what kind of God we pray to. And when Jesus tells us that our Father knows what we need before we ask Him, He's not discouraging us from praying. He's not saying, well, it's a pointless exercise. I like the way Philip Yancey said it. He said, he could only mean that we need not strive to convince God to care. That's the context of these verses, right? Don't heap up a bunch of meaningless phrases and go on and on thinking that you will get God's attention. You already have God's attention. He knows what you need. See, some pagans thought that if they, just, if they named all their gods and addressed their petitions to each of them and then repeated themselves a few times, they would have a better chance of being heard. The Old Testament contains the memorable story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal engaged in a showdown of sorts. And we read this in 1 Kings, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's fallen asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on and on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. See, the prophets of Baal were convinced that what they needed to do, they needed to rouse their gods by showing just how serious they were, by calling out for a long time with a loud voice and even cutting themselves. Then their gods might respond. But the God of the Bible is not like that. Our Heavenly Father is not like that. And even within the Jewish tradition, there was also a sense that prayers needed to be long to be effective. And there is within Judaism something known as the 18 benedictions. These are the prayers that are supposed to be said three times a day by all observant Jews. It used to be two times a day. Now it's three times a day. And the 18 benedictions date all the way back to a time when the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. So sometime before A.D. 70 and maybe even as far back as as the time that, that Jesus was doing his ministry. At least in some form. So many living at Jesus' time thought this is how you get God's attention. You pray these long prayers multiple times throughout the day. And then maybe God will listen. And this idea is found in many religions. So within Islam, prayers are supposed to be prayed at the five appointed times each day. Hindu and Buddhist prayers depend upon the idea of repetition. The recitation of mantras, words, sounds, syllables are thought to stir the deity in some sense. You get his attention through the right words at the right time, showing all seriousness. And what Jesus says here is so helpful. See, ultimately, how we pray is not just a practical issue. It's not ultimately about our posture or the time we pray at or getting the mechanics of prayer just right. Ultimately, how we pray is a theological issue. It's related to the way we view God. The way we see God is reflected in the way we pray. And Jesus wants us to understand that we don't have to make some kind of show to get the Father's attention. Jesus wants us to know what kind of heavenly father we have. We have one who is ready to hear us. He knows what we need even before we ask him. He loves to communicate with us. A little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus returns to the subject of prayer, he says this Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? That's what our Heavenly Father is like and that's what Jesus wants us to know. And when you understand that this is what God is like, it makes prayer a joy to do. Trust the character of God. Fourthly, Delight in God's nearness and marvel at his vastness. Now, we might take this for granted today, but referring to God as Father was a radical thing to do in the first century. And this is how Jesus taught us to address God. Now, God is referred to as Father in the Old Testament but only 14 times in all 39 Old Testament books. And most of those references are found in the book of Deuteronomy. And most of those references are about God's relationship to Israel, that God is a father to the nation of Israel. But when you come to the New Testament, you find that Jesus referred to God almost exclusively as father almost 60 times in the four Gospels. And even more striking is the fact that He taught us to pray our Father. What's even more amazing is that the word Jesus used in Aramaic was not the formal word for Father, but the common word for Father, Abba. Now, the meaning is not quite Daddy, but something like dearest Father. It's a term of closeness and affection. And this is how we are taught to address God, in prayer. And we do it this way because we've been adopted as God's sons and daughters. Paul says it this way in the book of Galatians. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We read almost the same thing in the book of Romans. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. J.I. Packer considers one's grasp of the father of God's fatherhood and of one's adoption as a daughter or a son as of essential importance in the Christian life, here's what he said. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, And better than the old. Everything that is distinctly Christian as to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And then he says, Father is the Christian name for God. And this is how Jesus teaches us to approach God as our heavenly Father. See, it's this intimate relationship with God that gives us boldness when we come before him in prayer. I think it's significant that the very first word to come from the prodigal son's lips when he returns home is father. It's our relationship with God as father, as his son or his daughter that grants us access to him. Now look, I, I imagine that it would be very difficult for you or me to get a meeting with our prime minister. We may want to do that and may have some things to say I think this would be true for most people who would want to schedule a meeting with him, but I'm pretty sure the rules would be totally different for his children. I remember teaching on this uh, a number of years ago, and I shared this illustration. I'll share it again. I stumbled upon it this week. It goes back to the early days of our church, but I was working at home Ilona had run out to pick up a couple of our kids from soccer camp. Our youngest daughter, Rachel, came up to me and said, Daddy, are you free? I was like, well, you know, I'm actually working on some stuff right now. And then she said, well, if you're free, I wanted to see if you would play with me until mom gets home. Now, look, if you had have called me at that moment or that part of the day and said, you know, Lee, could I come see you or could I, could I have an appointment? I might have said, look, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. But with my daughter... And you know, when I I remember she was about six years old at the time, just looking into her eyes, I'm just basically a ball of putty, right? I mean, she had me at Daddy, do you want to do something? And listen, this is how it is with God. We come to him as our heavenly father. It's a tremendous privilege we have in prayer. So we ought to delight in God's nearness, that he is our father. But I said we also need to marvel at his vastness. Now, I don't want to undo what I just said, but I think we, we do have to be careful that we don't overemphasize God's nearness and neglect his holiness. If one mistake we can make is to think of God as being distant and remote, another is to think of him as some sort of celestial teddy bear. Right? This is the idea that God exists for our personal comfort. We think of him as though he were a, a doting but daft uncle. He's just kind of there for, for whenever we want. And this is not just a problem that's out there somewhere. Some churches even present a view of God that's not quite heretical or blasphemous, but so shallow and irreverent that people's view of God becomes totally lopsided. So Lifeway Publishers, one of the largest Christian publishers, recently put out a devotional guide for Gen Zers. And it sought to translate some of the verses from the Bible in more up-to-date language. So John 1.1 is a familiar verse. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here was LifeWay's rendering. Since day uno, there was cap G. Big J was chilling with cap G, and Big J was cap G. Now listen, I get what they're trying to do. But that's the kind of thing that denigrates God's name rather than makes it hallowed. And so while we want to understand God is our Father, we have to remember He is our Father in heaven. shouldn't diminish the wonder we have that God would care for the concerns of our lives. It should actually enhance it. The fact that He is in heaven or in the heavens, that He's cosmic means that he's the only one who can do what it is that we are asking for in prayer. So our response to this knowledge should be the same as the psalmist. What he said in Psalm 8, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger." This is how vast God is. Then the psalmist goes on to say, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, do you see how these two things go together? The more we understand God's holiness and majesty and vastness, the more amazed we ought to be that he relates to us with the love of a father for a son or a daughter. And this ties in with the first petition in this prayer. Hallowed be your name. We desire that God would be known like this on earth as he is in heaven. So when we pray our Father in heaven, we are at once acknowledging both God's transcendence as the one who's reigning in heaven and his imminence as the Father who delights in his children. final thing I want to say about prayer from this passage is that we ought to learn to see the way Jesus meets our deepest desires. And this is something I want to say about this series as a whole. Look, we're not just trying to go through, let's go through the 10 disciplines and let's get a place where you can put a box and make a check mark next to it. We're pursuing these rhythms of grace so that we might know Jesus better. And as we close here, all I want you to do is to think about the fact that every line in the prayer that Jesus gives to us is connected to him. Jesus is the answer to every petition in this prayer. Jesus is the one who has given us free access to the Father. Jesus is the name that is to be hallowed above every other name. It's at his name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus has shown us not just what God's kingdom looks like when it comes, but he has revealed to us what the king is like. Jesus is the king. Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus has revealed he came and did his Father's will, and he has revealed God's will to us. Jesus tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the one, the bread who has come from heaven and satisfies us in a way that no earthly food ever could. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. And Jesus is the one who has purchased our forgiveness by his suffering on the cross. Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And it is Jesus who has overcome temptation. He and he alone has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin. We don't stand before the Father because of our righteousness, but because of His. Do you see how praying this prayer draws us in, or ought to draw us in, to the heart of worship? So I want to close this morning simply by praying this prayer. And have you pray along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done